0: I'd like you to think with me for a moment about the most important truth about you. If someone wanted to get to know you, to know the real you, and to know uh, where you've been, where you're going, what values, uh, what matters to you, what would be on a list of details that you might want to give them that would be uh, important to tell, you, uh, tell them what makes you tick? Now, you could suggest probably a, a lot of possibilities of things that might be on a list like that if you were to make one. Maybe your job would be uh, on the list. Here's what I do. <coughs> your, your marital status. Uh, whether or not you have any children. Uh, there are some circles in which it's very important that you identify uh, or, or, or be known your race or your ethnicity or even your gender identity or sexual orientation, At some places, your age is crucial. It matters at PennDOT whether or not you are 16 as opposed to 15. It matters in a court of law whether you are 18 as opposed to 17. It matters at a bar whether you are 21, unless you're Baptist, or 20. It matters, right? It matters at the Social Security office if you're 65 or 64 or, I don't know, 67 or 66, by the time I get there, 90 or 89 matters. Uh, Some people, to them, uh, near the top of their list of what's important to them would be their alma mater, their education, where they went to school. Uh, Pastor Scott has a joke that he tells on me. Often he says, how can you know if someone went to Dallas Seminary? And the answer is, they will tell you. And I just did, so works out okay. Your nationality, how about that, putting out on your list, your nationality. Well, What would be at the top of your list? Here's the most important thing you need to know about me if you want to know what makes me tick. What goes at the top of your list? A.W. Tozer was a preacher in the 20th century. Here's his suggestion for the most important thing about you. Look what he said. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains higher low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what at a given time he may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. The Most important thing about you is what you think about God. Now, is Tozer right about that? Uh, I mean, you would expect that would be the sort of thing we would say at church, right? I mean, we're at church. That's what we're, we're going to say. But is he actually right? We're going to spend the next few weeks operating as if what he says is true. We're going to talk about who God is for the next few weeks. I confess this is an unplanned series. If you'd asked me at the beginning of June what we'd be doing at the beginning of July, this is not what would I have, what I would have said. Uh, And and again, it's a deviation from our normal practice of walking through passages of Scripture. But for the times that I preach in the month of of July, we're going to talk about who God is. We're going to talk today about the power of God. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the goodness of God. And then on July 17th, the plan is that we're going to talk about the wisdom of God. My hope is that, uh, 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 well, if Tozer's right, this is a crucial topic. And my hope is that while we talk about these things, I might prove to you that Tozer was right. The most important thing about you is what you think of God. First, we're going to talk about the power of God. But before we do that, I want to share with you two uh, introductory, two important truths about God, even before we start talking about uh, the rest of uh, his power this morning. Um, Dane Ortland said that one of our problems that we have when we think about God is we tend to think of God as just like us, only a little bit uh, or a lot stronger, and uh, no body and no sin. So there's us, And then there's Superman, and then there's God without a body, without sin. You know, just just like us, only bigger. That will not do. Here's a couple reasons why. Number one, we believe that God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. Now, the word incomprehensible is a technical theological term. I'm sure you know what it means. My hope is that at the end of this sermon, you won't say, that was incomprehensible. That's my hope. But when we when we use it to describe God, we are saying as much as we might want to know God, our ability to know him is limited. We can know God truly, but not completely. Uh, James Dolezal has written and teaches about that, and he helps us, I think, with some of our vocabulary in this regard. Are you ready for vocabulary? It's a holiday weekend. Who should have to learn vocabulary in a holiday weekend? But this is a slightly above average congregation, so I know you're ready for it, okay? So incomprehensible. Well, in the middle of that word, you you see the word prehence, which means to take a hold of. To take a hold of. If you're at a, a zoo and you see a monkey swinging from a branch by its tail, you'll go read that little plaque about the monkey and it will say, This monkey has a prehensile tail, which means it has a tail that is capable of grasping something. It's prehensile, it can take a hold of. And we use this word to talk about our ability to understand things. We have a word in English that we use to describe our, our knowledge, uh, the word app Rehend, apprehend, to grasp toward which means like I'm going to do with this communion chalice we can we can pick things up we can take things and put them in our hand we can apprehend them what well, intellectually it means I can understand this I can get a hold of it. Now the word comprehend different than apprehend means to understand something completely like I can take my hand and 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 completely surround this communion cup I have, comprehensively surrounded it. I have comprehended, intellectually, I have comprehended, I know it completely and wholly. We can apprehend the truth about God. We cannot comprehend the truth about God. Is there any, what in your life do you have a comprehensive knowledge of? Is there anything that you know comprehensively? Hmm, I'm not sure. Well, You do. Oh, well, you're ahead of me. So good. Uh, I think, so this apprehend versus comprehend, I think Paul has this in mind in in Ephesians 3.19. Look what Ephesians 3.19 says. He's praying for the Ephesians and he says, I pray that you would know God's love that surpasses knowledge. What an unusual phrase. I want you to know this love that's impossible for you to know. I want you to apprehend God's love that is incomprehensible. So you see how how that works. Practically, what this means is that whatever we say about God, God is always greater. He's always bigger. He's always more. He is always, so we're going to talk about his power. He is always more powerful than I will be able to describe this morning. He is always, we're gonna talk next week, Lord willing, about his goodness. He is always better. He is always more good than I will be able to describe next week, than any human being with any vocabulary or with any brain sort of brain power will be able to describe. God is always more wise. He's always more than anything that we can ever say about him, which is why there's no, need, no end of the need that we have to use our gifts and skills to write new songs praising him because there's always more about him that can be said. God is incomprehensible. Secondly here, God is simple. God is simple. Now again, I have here another technical word that can sometimes be deceptive because uh, when we use the word simple, we talk about things that are, for example, easy to understand. First grade math unless you're a kindergartner, but first grade math is simple, right? Two plus two is four. Two plus three is five. Two plus four is six. Simple math, easy to understand. Or we talk about simple things in terms of uh, limited uh, things. Simple things can only accomplish a few tasks I remember learning in school about simple machines. Do you remember that? There's, I don't know, six or seven or eight. I can't remember. Simple machines. The lever, the pulley, the wedge. Simple machines. Very few parts can only do a couple of things. In contrast to that, think about a a jumbo jet, a a 737. How many parts in a 737? 600,000 parts. And it can do a lot with all of those parts, it can carry hundreds of people, hundreds of miles in just a few hours, and all the while, it can serve them hot coffee. And, and uh, they can watch movies and, and have lights and, and fans blow on them. And if, if the plane goes into the ocean, they, their, their cushion is used as a flotation device. Like, like it's not simple. It's, 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 uh, it can do a lot of things. Now, when we say that God is simple, we're we're not saying that he's easy to understand, and we're not saying that he can't do very much. What we're saying is that we mean God has no parts. God has no parts. We're talking these days about the things that are true about him, attributes of him, but they're not parts of God. God is not like a recipe. So you taste the cookies and you think to yourself, this needs more cinnamon, or this needs more sugar. We, we, no, we, we, don't, we don't sample God and say, this needs more mercy. This, this needs more holiness. No, 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 no. No, God has no parts. What God is, he is holy through and through, thoroughly, infinitely, and perfectly. He doesn't have power. He is power personally, he doesn't have goodness, he is goodness personally. He doesn't have wisdom, he is wisdom personally. James Dolezal again practically says what this means is that, that God, you can trust him because he'll never fall apart on you. He has no parts, he can't fall apart. Some of you work with complicated machines, really complicated machines, multi-million-dollar printers, or you work with uh, tractors or pavers or vehicles, cars, Machines that have a lot of parts, and when it, it, it stops working, you, you got to figure out, oh, it's, which, part, which part has broken so that this machine won't work? With God, there are no parts. There's no part that breaks. He won't fall apart. He's worthy of your trust. So God is incomprehensible and God is simple. That's a good place to start. Now let's think about the power of God. What do we mean when we say that God is powerful? Well, you're familiar perhaps with the word omnipotent. I bet most of you are omnipotent. God is omnipotent and a basic, well, that means all powerful, it's basic, but a basic definition of what we mean when we talk about God being powerful, we mean that God can do whatever he pleases. God can do whatever he pleases. Now that that sentence needs some clarification, needs some refining, but it will do. Keep in mind, God can do whatever he pleases. Can you do whatever you please? Are you able to do whatever you please? I cannot do whatever I please. I cannot fly. But I wish I could. I can't grow hair on the top of my head. I can't see without glasses or context. Right now, I'm wearing both of them. Mm, there's a lot that I can't do, uh, that I want to do. God, though, can do whatever he pleases. Now, let's think about the nature of God's power, and we're going to elaborate on that sentence. I would just want to show you a few verses that, uh, that, that affirm for us that God can do whatever he pleases. This baseline in the Bible, look here, Job 23.13. Look what Job 23.13 says, he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm five six. the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Ephesians 1.11, in him we were also chosen, having predestined according to the plan of him. Now here's a description of God. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God does whatever he pleases. God can do whatever he pleases. Second here, God can do what seems impossible. God can do what seems impossible. In the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah that they're gonna have a son. When he first first makes that promise, it is a a wonderful promise, an expected promise, but Abraham and Sarah have to wait for a long time till finally Abraham reaches the age of 100 and his wife Sarah is in her 90s. And God comes and says, you're gonna have a baby. And, and Sarah laughs. Are you kidding me? That, that ship has sailed. My father told me yesterday that his Medicare supplement plan announced that they have expanded some of their services. And now as part of his Medicare supplement plan, you can get when you need them prenatal vitamins. You should think about that. There's not many people on Medicare who need prenatal vitamins. Hmm. Yes, that's odd. So God comes and says to Sarah in her 90s, "Get out your prenatal vitamins." They say, "No, no, 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 no." And the angel says, "The angel." Uh, God says to Abraham in Genesis 18:14, "Is anything too hard for the Lord?" God can do what seems impossible. Something similar happens, of course, in the Gospel of Luke when the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. She says, how can that be uh, since I'm a virgin? And the angel says to uh, Mary, no word from God will ever fail. God can do what seems impossible. God can do what seems impossible. He can even save rich people from their sins. Now, you didn't gasp at that because you haven't thought about how impossible that is. There's a conversation once that Jesus had with a man. You probably know the conversation. In Matthew chapter 19, he came to Jesus and he said, he had a lot of money. He said, how can I be saved? How, how can I have, no, for sure, I'm going to have eternal life. And Jesus spoke with him for a little bit. And the man walked away. He didn't want to do what Jesus said. He didn't want to listen to what Jesus said. And the disciples were shocked. Um, what, what, how, why? We, if, if anybody could be saved, we think it'd be rich people. And Jesus says, no, that's really hard. And then he said, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's striking. It's striking. We don't tend to think this way. The New Testament tells us that it warns us a lot about money. No, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Money can accomplish many good things. The schools that I went to, this building that I work in and that we worship in is here in part to the generosity of people with their resources. So I'm grateful for what money can accomplish. But money, there's warnings in the Bible about money too. Reminds me of a conversation, uh, Claire, uh, my daughter Claire, uh, her favorite line from Fiddler on the Roof is when uh, uh, Tevye the Milkman is speaking to his, son who, his son-in-law, who's a communist, and his son-in-law says to him, money is a curse. And Tevye says, well, then may God smite me with it so that I never recover. <laughs> yes. Money, here's the problem. Money can be blinding to your deep spiritual needs. It can cause you from seeing how deep your spiritual needs are. That's the danger. Actually, any of God's blessings can do that to you. Um, uh, Your good looks, your sharp intellect, your fame, your talents can blind you to seeing the depths of your spiritual need. But I have good news for you. God can do what's impossible. He can even save rich people from their sins. Now, next here on my list, third, we're thinking about the nature of God's power. No one can stop God from doing what he wants. No one can stop God from doing what he wants. He's never frustrated. His plans are never foiled. He never has to move from plan A to plan B because there's no one that can stop God from doing what he wants. God is the only person who gets his to-do list done every day. Look at these uh, verses here. 2 Chronicles 26 says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. No one can withstand you, God. Proverbs 21.30, there's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Isaiah 43, 13, yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? No one can stop God from doing what he wants. Next, this is odd. God's power is manifest in weakness. God's power is manifest in weakness. This is an odd thought to consider. It's a strange reality in the Bible God's power is most evident in the Bible, he says, against the backdrop of human weakness. Think about what he tells the nation of Israel in the, book of, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy. God chooses the nation of Israel and he says to them, I did not choose you because you were the strongest nation. I did not choose you because you were the largest nation on earth or the wealthiest nation on earth or the most skilled nation on earth. No, I chose you to, because I chose you to, through your weakness, through your smallness, through your poverty to show my great power. Or think about what Paul says about the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.25. He said, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The weakness of God. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. You see, the Corinthians, the Corinthians, and I understand why, are drawn to strong things, witty things, beautiful things. And the cross at first glance is not beautiful, and it's not brilliant, and it's at first glance not very strong. It just seems to be weak. And yet, Paul says... Yet at this grand moment of weakness, it was there that God's love and God's great justice are on display. At the cross, this sign that looks so weak is when God is fulfilling the promises he made to rescue us. Remember, on the cross, Jesus did what only the God-man can do. He bore our sins. He bore the condemnation for our sins. The guilt, God assigned our guilt to him, him who knew no sin, who had no sin to die for, God assigned to him our sin and he died so that, he died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, so that when we turn and trust in him, his perfect record is then assigned to us and we can have eternal life and a renewed relationship with God and be reconciled to him and be forgiven. That great exchange took place on the cross. When I was seven or eight years old, we were in J.C. Penny, my father was shopping for a suit. I was bored. the men's department of J.C. Penny. What a terrible place to be. It's a barren desert. And I recognized, I noticed as I was walking around, I noticed here that the hangers uh, with all the suits had little slots in the top near the hook where you could put a little tag that would give you the size of the suit. And there they were in order, you know, 40, 42, 46, 40. And I discovered that those tags come out. So while I was there for 30 minutes, I spent my time switching all the tags on those suits. (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never bought a suit before. I had no idea. I, I shopped at the Husky section, okay? So I didn't know. <laughs> but you think about it, those poor people would go to shop. Uh, I don't even need to try anything on. I am sure I'm a size 42. Just give it to me. <laughs> Oops. So I, I, uh, think about this. These suits, the tag, the tags are switched. and Because of the cross, of what God has done, he has switched our clothes, my dirty, sin-stained clothes assigned to Jesus and His righteous good son, uh, his goodness before God, His obedience assigned to me. Oh, the cross looks so weak, and yet it is the power of God to provide salvation for us sinners. Think here about God's power and weakness through Paul's own testimony. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, some of you have already been thinking about this. Paul had some physical illness. We don't know what it was. It made him weak. He thought it made him weak. He asked God to take it away. God said no. And then God said to him, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. If you want to know Christ's power in your life, you look at your weaknesses differently as opportunities for God's great power to be on display in your life because of his more than sufficient grace. Now, that's some things to think about with the nature of God's power. We should think, though, before we move on about what God cannot do What God cannot do, seems funny to say this. Here's a couple of things God cannot do something illogical. He can't make a square circle. God can't make a triangle that has four corners. God can't act outside of his nature. He can't lie. He can't die. He can't sin. Because he doesn't have a body, he cannot tie his shoes. God cannot make his breakfast. God can't change his eternal plans. It's odd. It's odd to think about this. This is like to say that somebody can't do something because it sounds like weakness. Actually, it's strength to say this. Here's an example. Uh, Imagine a batter, the best batter ever in the major leagues, and uh, he starts a season, and throughout the season, all he hits, every time he's at the plate, he hits triples and home runs. And after weeks of this, he comes to the plate again in the season. And the announcers say, one of them said, well, here, here comes Griswold to the plate. He's had a phenomenal season. He uh, uh, has only been hitting triples and home runs. And the, the other commentator says, yes, this man, he is a thrill to watch. He's a thrill to watch. He can't even hit a single. It's something he can't do, but it's a tribute to him because of his superior batting strength. Right? So when we say that God can't do something, it's actually a compliment. He can't lie, he can't die, he can't sin, all because of his great strength. Now, some of you are asking the question, you've already thought of it. I'll try to answer it right now. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? This is what keeps Bible college students up all night long in their dorm rooms, talking about questions as profound as this. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, here's here's the problem with that question. God has an infinite ability to make big rocks, and he has an infinite ability to lift big rocks. So where is the end of God's infinite ability to make big rocks and his infinite ability to lift big rocks? He can make a rock, and he can always make a rock that's bigger. He can lift a rock. He can always lift a rock that's heavier. So where does that end? You're, when we're talking about finitude, it never ends, and because his strength is infinite, he can make all those rocks and lift them all without breaking a sweat, without having a hard day, without a, a sore shoulder or or a, 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 a broken wrist. He he he, can God lift a rock? He so big he can't lift it. Don't ask dumb questions. The nature of God's power. Now let's think here about the extent of God's power. So uh, um, uh, now here we're thinking about how God uses his power. What does he use his power to do? God's, we're talking about God's authority. Now we're talking about God's control. We use some more theological words, God's sovereignty or a biblical word, God's lordship, God's lordship over all. Some things to know. First of all, the Bible tells us that God sustains everything. God sustains everything. Nothing happens without God's sustaining, governing control. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, look what it says about Jesus. It says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and is visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." Um, when we, when Kathy and I lived in Dallas, did I tell you that we lived in Dallas when I went to seminary in Dallas? Okay. So anyway, uh, when we lived in Dallas, we lived in downtown Dallas, and what was striking to me is how much we lost power living in downtown Dallas, Texas. We we lost power more in that major city than I ever did in Podunk, Perry, New York, when I was growing up. But we were, we lived in Dallas. Storms would come across. You could see them come across downtown, heading towards our apartment, and uh, fierce. Thunder and lightning storms, and when they come, you just know, we're going to lose power. Off it goes. God, like the power that's cutting out, God sustains everything that is. You are, right now, you are, because God wills, God is willing now that you be. And if God ceases to will that you be, or that chair be, or this building be, or creation be, if he ceases willing that, then it will cease to be, because God sustains everything. Now, we can be a little bit more specific about that. We can think here about God's power over creation, God's power over creation. It's interesting the way Jesus speaks about the Father in, his, in the Sermon on the Mount. Think, look at these verses and see how Jesus is picturing God Matthew 5.45. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 6.26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Matthew 6.30, is that how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice how personal Jesus is being with God's control over his creation. It's as if God, he causes the sun to rise and set. It's as if God flips the switch and, oh, there's the sun. Or God takes his watering can and he pours it over creation as he wills. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or there's birds and every day God gets out, reaches into his big bag of seed and sprinkles the seed and feeds the birds. Or God clothes, clothes the lilies of the field you have daylilies in your landscaping. There's probably a bud or two on your daylilies. They're waiting to open those, that green uh, pod. It's not a pod. That green, those green leaves are waiting to open. And, and they can't open because yet because God is in heaven with his sewing machine making them the clothes. And when he's done with, uh, with his uh, pressing and cutting and, and sewing, he's going to drop on that lily so it can pop open. And you can see God's beautiful design that he made for that uh, plant know, personally, God has this power over creation. Jesus wants you to know that. Then there's God's power over history. God's power over history. We could look at a dozen passages, two dozen passages in the Old Testament, but think about Paul's summary in Acts chapter 17. He says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Why is July 4th important? Because God had July 4th on his calendar. His calendar. Why is July 1st matter? It was on God's calendar. Then, here... We're getting a little bit more dicey. God's power over human decisions and actions. God's power over human decisions and actions. This is an affirmation of the Bible. It's a necessary part of what the Bible says God is, who the Bible says God is. Look at Jeremiah 1:5 to think about this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, think of the role that God is going to have to play in Jeremiah's life as he's going to fulfill that promise, that declaration. You're going to be a prophet. And from the womb, I set you aside from that. What's that mean? It means in this instance, by God's power, Jeremiah's mother didn't miscarry. And Jeremiah, when he was born, didn't get one of those childhood diseases that kill so many babies. And by God's sovereign providence, there was no burglar that broke into Jeremiah's house when he was 6 and killed the people in the home. And and by God's power when Jeremiah was a teenager and like all teenage boys he did foolish things God kept him from breaking his neck. And God worked in Jeremiah's life so that when he was ready, he began to speak to him. God carried him all the way through life so that he could get to the point of fulfilling this ministry of prophesying. Oh, how much power, how much control, how much lordship does God exercise over Jeremiah? Or here's Psalm 139.13. These are verses that make us jubilant, over the repeal of Roe v. Wade, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. We're jubilant because of what these verses say about God and his oversight of the womb. David says to God, "'You created my inmost being. "'You knit me together in my mother's womb.'" How much is this is the lordship of God that all of David's days were written in God's book before any of them came to be? Um, we could think when power uh, God's power over human decisions and actions. We could think about your heart. According to the Bible, we think uh, metaphorically that human beings make decisions with their minds. You decide with your mind. In the Bible, you make decisions with your heart. And look what Psalm thirty three fifteen says: He who forms the heart of all, the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Jeff read this from Psalm 33. It's a description of God. What is God? Who is God? He's the one who forms the hearts of all. It's interesting. It doesn't feel like this when you make a decision, but your decider, who made your decider? God made your decider. He's the one who formed you and how you dec- the, the, the organ with which you decide. How much power does God have? Now, we think here about God's, last year, God's power over evil and sin. This is a great challenge. It calls for careful thought. We don't have time to talk about it in great detail this morning, but we're talking about God's lordship, his power, and we get here to the point, it's already dicey enough to talk about God's power over human decisions, as if I don't have freedom. Uh, Objections abound to this here, God's power over evil and sin. How does this not make us robots or puppets? How does this not make God complicit in evil if he has power and control over evil? So some people like to use the word that God permits evil and sin, not that he ordains evil and sin because they think permit is a better word. It's not helpful. It doesn't solve the problem. The Bible teaches both the lordship of God over all things and the reality of human choices, including the choices that are broken and destructive. And the Bible is not ashamed to put those two things together. So we shouldn't be either. But look at Genesis 50. Um, Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers have sinned against him grievously. And look what he says about what they've done. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The lordship of God, the sinfulness of Joseph's brothers, here they are in one act together at the same time. Or, more poignantly, I refer to this often with you, I it feels like, Acts 4.27, the disciples are praying after Jesus has ascended to heaven, and here's what they say, "'Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed.'" Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people in the city conspired together to do something horrible, some great evil. They crucified Jesus and that's evil. It's horrible that that happened. And yet, look what he says, the, apost- the how they pray. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If you want to tear God's power, control over evil and sin away from human choices, and you want to make that gulf deep and wide, you know what you have done? You have started to unravel the logic of the cross itself. Now, these strong affirmations, they might make it sound like you're a robot, or they might make it sound like God is the author of sin, but actually, you don't experience life as a robot, do you? You don't feel that way. When you make decisions, you feel very much like, I am am doing this. I am volitionally doing this. Even addicts who want to talk about their lack of control acknowledge, I decided to do this. I did this. That's how you experience life. I think there's a better analogy to come to our minds than the analogy of puppetry or robotics. Um, uh, Wayne Grudem uses this. John Frame suggests this analogy. He says that we should think not of God as the divine programmer and us as robots. He says we should think of God as the author and uh, 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 the relationship between an author and his book. And since this is above average congregation, let's think about Shakespeare for a minute, shall we? William Shakespeare wrote a play called Macbeth. And in Macbeth, the character Macbeth kills King Duncan. And in the world that Shakespeare's created, Macbeth is thinking about killing Duncan. He plans for it. He wants to do it. He's responsible for it. It was his decision. So who killed King Duncan? Macbeth killed King Duncan. Shakespeare wrote the play. So who killed King Duncan? Well, Shakespeare kind of did too, didn't he? But not in a way. We would arrest Macbeth and try him for murder We would not arrest Shakespeare as the author and and, and try him for murder. No, no. That is, It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's helpful to think about the world God made that way. Author in his book, author in her book, uh, not programmer and robot. Now, let's think here, finally, about our response to God's power and two things to say just briefly. One, worship. We respond to God's power by worshiping him. How many of the Psalms, your power is great. You are great in power. You are mighty to save. You uh, are unstoppable, God. This is how, uh, we're going to talk about worship a lot in the next few weeks. And here is this response to God's great power. We're in awe of your great power. And then trust, trust. Because God has given his power to us. I want to read a long paragraph of scripture and I, I don't lose the thread, but look in Ephesians 1.17. Paul is praying for the Ephesians and he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, here's what I'm asking, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Well, that's a good way to pray. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know three things. I want you to know these things. Paul Paul says, I'm praying that you would know these things. One, the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and third, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would know God's power for us. Now, how he describes it. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. Huh. that's a lot of power. The Bible knows something about you. The Bible knows that you can get very tired. Is anybody tired? Some of you are tired because um, your marriage is really hard right now and it's exhausting. And some of you are tired because you have particular parenting challenges or there's an endless amount of work to do. Is anybody tired of doing laundry? Is anybody tired of fighting sin or moving forward, continuing? Here's another day uh, of grief. Here's another day of loneliness and you're just tired. Uh, Isaiah 40, 30 says, even youths grow weary, tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. The Bible knows you're tired, but the Bible also says that to weary people, God promises power. How much power is it? It's the same power that he used when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand. That's a lot of power. Do you remember that illustration I told a couple of weeks ago? Bob Russell said at first his, he was he was talking about a, f- a father who was standing in the kitchen, looking out the window, watching his son in the sandbox. And his son uh, somehow, there, this giant rock had gotten in the sandbox, and it was a rock so big this little kid couldn't lift it. He tried everything to get it out of the sandbox. He tried pulling it. He tried pushing it. He tried wedging it over the side. He just couldn't get this monstrous rock out of his sandbox. His father watched him struggle for a while and then went outside and said to him, you got a problem there, don't you? Yes. You can't move that rock. No, I've tried. I've tried. And the father said, have you used every strength that is available to you? And the little boy says, yes, I have. And the father says, no, you didn't. You didn't ask for my help. Youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Some of you are in the position these days to run. Some of you, all you can do is walk. Some of you are struggling to crawl. Some of you, all that you can do is face in the right direction. But God will give you the strength today to take the next step that you need, that he has called you to, because he is great in power. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. We are thankful to you for your, uh, this description that we find all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. You are a God who is great in power. You always accomplish your plans and your purposes. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to worship you aright and to, if Tozer's right, have true thoughts about you. Thinking carefully about you, then worshiping you truly and then trusting you, Father, for our weariness. Oh, show yourself strong on behalf of those who are weary today in this room. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying... Amen.